Grace and peace to you, friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks, and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1, Episode 62. Today is April 24th. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I appreciate all of you. I appreciate my regular listeners and my new listeners. So, and if you are new here, you may be scratching your head wondering, what is this? What is the Encyclopedia Challenge? Do I need to own encyclopedias? I only use Wikipedia. I just don't understand. Do I have to read along? Are there homework assignments? Um, let me ease your mind. The Encyclopedia Challenge is where I read the encyclopedia to, to you. The goal is to get through the entire encyclopedia, however long that's going to take. Um, a few words at a time. So... Uh, it may be years before we're done. Who knows? I have no clue. But I definitely appreciate you coming and joining us. If you enjoy listening to new words, uh, if you enjoy uh, gaining new information, or if you just like to laugh at someone who mispronounces every other word, you've come to the right place. And you may also be wondering, if you are new, what type of encyclopedias are being used here? And that is a great question. I use the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 and the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Now, the main source right now is the 1909. Um, I don't have the full set yet. I have gone and searched for them. Um, it's a huge task. <laughs> so I haven't found them yet, but we've got plenty of time. I'm in uh, no hurry. I will find them, and if we can't find them, then we'll just go straight to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 from now on. But, or from then on. But for now, we are sticking with the 1909 as the main source, and then the 1956 every now and then. Which today, actually, um, we do have quite a few words from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, especially in the beginning. Um, we, in fact, start with an entry from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. But before I get into the entries, I know that's what you've come here for, and I appreciate it. Um, I did want to remind you that since today is the 24th of April, 2022, today is your last day to use the 20% off of the Teespring store. So if you want to get something for your mom for Mother's Day, or your dad for Father's Day, or your grandparents for Grandparents' Day, I don't even remember when that is, but Mother's Day is coming up very very quickly I believe it's May 8th um, so you may not have enough time to to get it it may have to be like an after Mother's Day gift uh, if you do choose to get uh, to use my store for your mother uh, for Mother's Day but again it does expire today so today is your last day for 20% off and the code is MANDY20 so my name Mandy20 is the code for 20% off, and the link to my Teespring store is in the description below. So all you have to do is either click the link or copy and paste it. Please don't do that while you're driving. Very, very dangerous. And again, before we get into our entries, we do have a quote of the month. This is the last day you will hear this quote, um, unless you go back and listen to previous podcasts, which to do that, you can visit my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and choose which episode you want to listen to, or you can go to the podcast links and just select wherever you uh, listen to your podcasts. Okay, and again, that website is in the description below, but it's theoaktreejourneys.com, and uh, you can also find the spellings to the encyclopedia entries, because a lot of these are not spelled the way they are pronounced. And that's why I say if you like to listen to someone mispronounce words left and right, that's me. Um, I, I try to pronounce it the way it's spelled, and that doesn't always work. But the quote of the month, uh, if you recall, the beginning of April, I, I uh, mentioned that this quote got me through a very difficult, what I thought was a difficult situation, crossing a creek. That was my choice. I put myself there. Um, but this, this quote really, really helped me out, um, to, to find a way to cross that cold, cold creek, even though my feet were freezing 
and they refused to move. Um, it's by Sidney Smith, who was an English cleric and journalist from seven, who lived from 1771 to 1845. And he said, the fact is that in order to do anything in this world worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank, thinking of the cold and the danger, but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. And I will repeat that before we leave uh, this week or today. Um, but yeah, that is the Sidney Smith quote that got me past that uh, point, especially the stand shivering. You know, we don't stand shivering on the bank thinking of the cold and the danger. Um, that's the part. Okay, so last week we ended with all, all were or mashery. And this week we are going to begin with Aliates. And then we have Olypius, Alzog, Johannes Baptist, Am, and Amadeus. <laughs> so the first three entries are from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So Aliates was a king of Lydia. He died in 560 BC. He was a ruler of the house of Mermnadi about 617 BC. He succeeded his father, Sidiates. He continued to reign until the end of his life, waging wars which established the Lydian Empire in Western Asia Minor. An eclipse of the sun in the midst of the battle on May 28, 585, against Siaxes of Media halted the strife and resulted in conclusion of a peace which established the Hales River as their common boundary. So that's entry number one. So entry number two, again from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956, is Alapius. He was a Greek theorist and writer on music. He flourished about 360 AD. His introduction to music, a list of symbols of scales and modes, is the principal guide to the system of musical notation employed by the ancient Greeks. So if you are a music history major, this is for you, or if you just love music. Mark Mabemius, who lived from 1630 to 1711, published in 1652 a collection of his writings and those of others under the title Antique Musica Atoris Septum. Okay, and number three, I said Alzog, it's, again, this is where it's spelled uh, differently than it's pronounced. It's Altsok, comma, Johannes Baptist, or Johannes Baptist Altsok, he was a German Roman Catholic Church historian. He was born Aloa Cilicia in June 29th of 1808. He died Freiburg M. Basaga on March 1st, 1878. He studied at Breslau and Bonn and was ordained priest in 1834. Alt Salk was a professor in the seminary at Paulsen from 1836 to 1844. And in 1853 was appointed professor of church history in the university at Freiburg in Roscoe. His main work was Le Buc du der Universal. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. So, but uh, the translation is a manual of church history. I'm so glad there's an English translation. <laughs> um, so he published a work called A Manual of Church History. Um, in 1840, the English translation actually came out later in 1874. So it was much, much later, um, four years before he passed away. Okay, and let's switch to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for entries number four and five before break. So entry number four is M. That's a verb, and it means first singular present tense of the verb be. I am is one of God's titles. So I am that I am. If you recall that from the Old Testament, I believe in Exodus, when Moses asks God who to uh, say sent him to the Israelites. And he said, say that I am, I am that I am sent you. And uh, number five, Amadeus, not this song. <laughs> you know, the Amadeus, Amadeus. Uh, you're not here to listen to me sing off tune, but... Number five is Amadeus, and this one is rather lengthy because it goes through the different Amadeuses 
that lived. So bear with me. It is two and a half pages long. And uh, let me let me pause and get a drink really quickly. Okay. And Amadeus actually means love god. It's a common name in the house of Savoy. The first who bore it was Count Amadeus, eldest son of Count... I don't know what I was trying to say there. Count Humbert, about the commencement of the 11th century. His successors gradually enlarged their paternal dominions, but the first to make an important figure in history was Amadeus V from 1249 to 1323, who succeeded his uncle Filippo in 1285. He acquired the dignity of a prince of the empire. He had a brother who resided long in England and while there built the Savoy Palace in London. So pretty cool. So Amadeus IV was called the Green Count, son of Amadeus V, who lived from 1334 to 1383. He succeeded his father in 1343. He was a sagacious, sagacious, moderate, and vigorous ruler who won various places from the Dauphin of France, became Lord Paramount of Piedmont, and through the favor of the Emperor Charles IV, obtained the vice regency over a great part of upper italy his influence among the italian states was very great amadeus the eighth uh, lived from 1383 to 1451 was at first under the guardianship of his grandmother a woman of superior talents but in 1398 he assumed the reins of government ruling with moderation and yet with love of order the zeal which with which he aided the policy of the emperor Sig Sigismund secured him the imperial favor, imperial favor and the elevation of Savoy into duchy in 1416. On the extinct extinction of its native dynasty, the 1418, in 1418 Piedmont chose him for its ruler as he was next of kin, but a religious melancholy took possession of his mind, and in 1434, November 7th, he laid down his authority, and with six of his knights, but took himself to a monastic hermitage which he had built on the shores of the lake of Geneva. He was elected pope in 1439 and assumed the name of Felix V, but he resigned the papal chair in 1448 and died three years afterward at Geneva. Well, that's, that's pretty unusual, isn't it? Okay, so Amadeus the Ninth, who died in 1472, does it say when he was born? After governing for four years, handed over his authority to his wife, Jolanth on account of ill health, but she used it very imprudently. While he lived, Amadeus was a mere tool in the hands of grasping factions. Amadeus I, who was also called Amadeo Fernando Maria, King of Spain, Duke of Oasta, from, lived from 1845 May 30th to 1890 January 18th, second son of Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy, he was elected King of Spain in 1870 on December 4th, abdicated the throne in 1873, February 11th, and lived quietly in Rome till his death. Amadeus. Okay, and I just see what I did. So, we're actually done with Amadeus, and the next word is Amadeus, so I need to fix that. <laughs> And with that, um, apparently I, I did not mean to lie, but it's not two and a half pages as I thought. Okay, so let's go to break, and I'll fix my mistake during break. And welcome back. The good news is, is I looked over uh, my list, and it was not a mistake. Well, it was, but... Uh, Easily correctable because Amadeus is actually in both the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary and the Encyclopedia Americana. So we'll read from just the... They're both really long entries, so we'll stick with the 1909, uh, the, the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary, um, to read Amadeus, which is number six. Um, but the rest of the list, we have... Amador, comma, Manual, Amadal, Amain, and Amal. Okay, so Amadis, number six, is a much-used heroic name in chivalric poetry. At the head of those heroes of romance stand, stands Amadis of Gaul, 
called the Lion Knight from the device on his shield and also Beltenbros or Darkly Beautiful. That's pretty cool. The other Amadises that figure in romance are represented as descendants more or less remote of Amadis of Gaul. He himself was what the Germans call a love child of the fabulous king of Perion of France and of Elisina, a princess of Britain. The relationship of several of the other Amadises, I want to, I just keep, the reason I stumble over it is because I want to say Amadeus, <laughs> because that's just such a cool name to say, because of the, because of the song. Um, Amadises to the princes and princesses of Colchis, Trebizond, Greece, and Cathay, that figure as their parents, is of the same unsanctioned kind. The romance which narrates the adventures of Amadis of Gaul is both the most ancient and the best of all the Amadis romances. It found favor even in the sight of Cervantes, who won immortal honor by overthrowing the long-usurped dominion of this evil sect. This one, however, has maintained its reputation even to the present day, not only because it was regarded by him as a literary curiosity, but also from its own merits as the original production of a creative fancy. The question of which, early raised and cannot yet be demonstratively settled as to whether this romance was originally a Portuguese, a Spanish, or a French production, proves at least the absence in it of all national peculiarities and the lack of all national traditions connected with it and hence the want also of a living historical background, which in the case of all really national legends is discernible through the purely epic structure. It may be asserted with certainty, both from internal and external evidence, that this romance is the pure subjective creation of the fancy of a single individual, and that was comprised at a time when the genuine epic style of chivalric writing was near its decline, consequently not earlier than the 14th century. It is also apparent that this romance must have been originally written in prose and intended to be read and not be recited. Lastly, it is not to be doubted that the author was well acquainted with the earlier legendary poetry and has imitated it in many things, but was, has nevertheless st struck out for himself an entirely new path in an opposite direction, which naturally tended to lead his less gifted imitators into a bottomless abyss. I love, I love that. Uh, imagery there, bottomless abyss, and at last brought about the extinction of the whole class. For these chivalric romances, doubtless unintentionally, became by degrees more and more of an ironical cast, and only a genius like Cervantes was wanting in order to complete their extinction by making the comic element the fundamental tone and exaggerating the incongruity inherent in such compositions. The Spanish Otomus Romances consist of 14 books, of which the first four contain the history of Otomus of Gaul, yet according to the researches of the learned Clemenson, stated in his commentary on Don Quixote, Madrid, 1833, it can scarcely be doubted that this most ancient part was originally written in the Portuguese language by the knight Vasco de Lobero of Porto, died in 1403, and that it must have been composed between 1342 and 1367. The original manuscript is said to have been in the possession first of the infant Alfonso of Portugal, son of John I, the founder of the House of Braganza, who died in 1461, and last in that of the Duke of Aveiro, and to have been destroyed during the earthquake in Lisbon in 1755. At least, these four books have been preserved only in the Spanish translation, which was made by Garcia Ordonez de Montalvo, about 1460, and was first pr printed between 1492 and 1505. The same Monta Montalvo added to it the fifth book, Las Surges de Esplendian, Hijo de Amadis de Gola. He began this book in 1485, but did not complete it until 1492. I understand that. It's taken me that long to work on books, too. The books from the 6th to the 14th contain the exploits and adventures of Florisando by Piaz de Ribeiro of La Suarte of Greece and of Perion of Gaul by Juan Diaz of Adamus of Greece of Flor Floricel of Nicaea and of Anarxit by Flancio de Silva of Ragel of Greece and of Silvus de la Selva by the same of Le Palmo Le, Le Palmo 
and of Leandro the Fair by Pedro de Lujan, and lastly of Penelva by an anonymous Portuguese. The French translators and continuators, beginning with Nicolas de Herberet, Sierre des Essarts, who published the first eight books between 1540 and 1548, have increased this series of romances to 24 books. Gilbert Saunier, Sierre de Duvardi, has written a conclusion in seven large volumes to all the adventures begun in the whole series of legends, which he has called Le Roman de Romans. How popular and widely circulated these romances were in their day may be proved by the many editions of single legends, by the translations of most of them into Italian, English, German, and even into Dutch, and also by the numerous chivalric romances written in imitation of them. As nevertheless a change came over the public taste, they almost all fell into oblivion, and indeed justly so because of their want of intrinsic merit. Amadis of Gaul has been deservedly accepted from this fate and has not only found readers in the present day, which is 1909, <laughs> but has been translated, revised, and imitated. De Lubert, Lubert and Count Tresson revived this romance in tasteful extracts and as Bernardo Tasso formerly did in his Amadigi, so now Cruz de Lesser and William Stuart Rose have extracted from it the materials for epic poems. Amadis de Gaulle, Poème Faciente Suite Suite, Aux Chevaliers de la Table Ronde, Paris, 1813, and Amadis of Gaulle, a poem in three books, London, 1803. On the other hand, Weyland's Near on Amadis has nothing in common with the more ancient Amadises except the title. See Barrett de la Amadis de Gaulle, Paris, 1873. So there we go. <laughs> Everything you wanted to know about the Romance era of Amadis, which is not Amadeus, it's Amadis. Number seven, Amador, Manuel, or Manuel Amador. He was the first president of the Republic of Panama, born in 1841, was for many years Minister of France in Panama. He is a soldier, so he was still alive when this was written. He is a soldier, statesman, scholar, and diplomat, and was largely instrumental in forming the new Republic of Panama. And number eight, Amado, or Amadal, noun, name given to the Polyporus ignorius and Polyporus or the P. fomentarius fungi of the tribe or division Hamenmacetes, formerly included in the genus Bletus. They grow upon old trees in Britain and on the continent of Europe. The Pileus is completely blended with the Hamenium, which is pierced with thin-sided, rather angular, tubular, vertical passages, the whole fungus thus appearing as a leathery or fleshy mass, the underside of which is pierced by deep pores. P. ignarius is called hard amado or touchwood. P. fomentarius is called soft amadal or German tinder. They are used as styptics for staunching slight wounds, and when steel and flint were in general used for striking fire, were much employed as tinder, being prepared for this purpose by boiling in a solution of nitre. The soft Amadal is used for making small surgical pads. Sorry, I forgot what the word was. I had to look. Um, for which its elasticity peculiarly fits it. P. fomentarius, or a very similar species, is found in India and used there as in Europe. It is also employed by the Laplanders and others for moxa. It is sometimes made into razor straps, and this use is likewise made of P. betulinus, P. officialinus, and Agaricon of the Scortus, which grows upon larch trees in the south of Europe, is a drastic prerogative now rarely employed. P. Um, I want to say civilians, uh, most of that is rubbed out, which grows upon the stems of willows and is easily recognized by its anise-like smell. Ooh, I like that smell. The anise was formerly employed in medicine in cases of consumption under the name fungus silicis. All these species are very similar in appearance. Another species of the same genus, P. destructor, is one of the fungi known by the name of dry rot. The remarkably light wood of Hernandia 
Dionysus is the shrub of the natural order Thamlacia. Is readily kindled by flint and steel. See agaric, which we've already done because agaric is A-G-A-R-I-C. So if you are curious and you do want to look that up, uh, just go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select en Encyclopedia Challenge, and just do a search for ag agaric, which is A-G-A-R-I-C. And number nine, a main. A main. With energy or force, suddenly, at once, applied by sailors in such orders or directions as lower a main, strike a main, etc. So that's a main, and that's number nine. Uh, for number ten, we're going to switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And let me make sure I've got the right spot. Ah, oh, here it is. A mall. So number ten is a mall. And that, and that's not a mall that you go to, <laughs> uh, that you buy buy things for. But a mall is the name of the noblest family among the Ostrogoths, and that from which nearly all their kings were chosen. All right, and with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Before I go into the list of the next set of five words. Just want to say um, to all of my friends and, and fellow writers out there, if you're participating in Camp NaNoWriMo, you are almost done. Remember, there's only 30 days in April. I hope you got your goals. If not, there's always next time. If you um, are a writer and didn't get to participate in Camp NaNoWriMo or you're curious about Camp NaNoWriMo and you want to try working on a project, um, you're just kind of dabbling in writing, uh, there is another camp, NaNoWriMo. Um, just go to NaNoWriMo.org, and I believe it's in July. I, be I believe that's uh, that's when the second camp is. Um, otherwise, if you miss that camp, uh, but you still want to participate and you want to do full-on novel, 50,000-plus words, that's in November. Um, and Same website, NaNoWriMo.org. So there you go. I just wanted to, to say that. So to, to anyone who's participating in Camp NaNoWriMo, I'll give you a shout out there. Uh, good luck. You're doing really great. Okay. And our next set of five entries are Amalari... <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Amal Eric. So Amal Eric. So remember, we ended with Amal um, and before break. So now we have Amal Eric. Now I have Amalekites. Amalfi, Amalgam, and Amalgam. Okay. And for entry number 11, we are in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Okay, so Amalaric, king of the Visigoths of Spain, and Septimania, the literal between the Rhone and the Pyrenees, born, they've got a question mark around 502, died 531. After the death of his father, Alaric II, in battle with Clovis in 507, he was taken to Spain, then ruled by his Ostrogoth grandfather, Theodoric. On the latter's death in 526, Amalaric assumed the sovereignty of Spain in Septimania, marrying Clovis's daughter, Clotilda. He attempted to force her conversion to Arianism. Her brother, Childebert, coming to her rescue with a Frankish army, defeated and killed him near Nairbon. Talk about brotherly love there. I wonder if it was her choice. I know it says forced, but, you know. And let's go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for entry number 12, the Am Amalekites. And if you read your Bible, you, you know who the Amalekites are, uh, but it may, may have been a while that you may recognize the name so it's one uh, they were one of the most fierce and warlike of the Canaanitish nations they dwelt in the land of the south numbers 1329 that is in the land south of Palestine or between Edomia and Egypt from the very first they manifested an uncompromising hostility to the Israelites whose rear guard they smote after the passage through the Red Sea in consequence of this, they received no mercy at the hands of the Israelites when the latter had established themselves in Palestine. Saul, in 1 Samuel 15:2, nearly annihilated them. Twenty years later, David, while dwelling amongst the Philistines, penetrated into their land and made dreadful slaughter of them. 
After this, they made a last desperate reprisal, but were overtaken by David in the midst of their drinking and dancing, and, quote, from twilight even unto the evening of the next day, end quote, he smote them, end quote, and there escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men who rode upon camels and fled, end quote. The descendants of these were finally extirpated in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, by the Simeonites. And number 13, Amalfi. So Amalfi, I'm not sure how I pronounced it earlier, but it's Amalfi. And that's a seaport on the Gulf of Salerno, on the west coast of southern Italy, has a very ancient cathedral, and is the seat of a bishop. It is said to have been founded under Constantine the Great, and was a was long a powerful and independent state, having at one time a population of 50,000, and about the close of the 11th century, fell under the power of the Normans. The maritime laws of Amalfi once prevailed throughout Italy, and that's Tabula Amalfitina, so that's the maritime law. The unique manuscript of the appendix was discovered at Amalfi, and Flavio Giaja, the inventor of the compass, oh, that's cool. So if you ever wondered who invented the com compass, it's Flavia Giaja, and I'm positive I'm mispronouncing his last name, but it's G-I-O-J-A. So he invented the compass, and Massanello were born there. Population upward of 5,000. So in the early 1900s, there was about 5,000 people. And have entry number 14, amalgam. So amalgam is a noun. It's a mixture of mercury with another metal, an alloy of which mercury forms a constituent part, amalgamate, verb, to compound or mix mercury with another metal, to blend, to incorporate. Amalgamating, amalgamated, amalgamation, noun, a mixing together different bodies, a union of two or more bodies into one, as of railway companies, synonym of amalgamate, to coalesce, unite, cohere, join. And I have a confession to make. I have used that um, to join in stories in a different manner. <laughs> so, alright, so... Number 15, we have amalgam again, which is a term applied to that class of alloys in which one of the combining metals is mercury. On the nature of the union, it has been observed that on adding successive small quantities of silver to mercury, a great variety of fluid amalgams are apparently produced, but in reality the chief, if not the sole compound, is a solid amalgam, which is merely diffused throughout the fluid mass. The fluidity of an amalgam Thus seems to depend on there being an ex excess of mercury above that, above wit, ugh, above what is necessary to form a definite compound. Mercury unites readily with gold and silver at the usual temperature. It has no disposition to unite with iron even when hot. A solid amalgam of tin is used to silver looking glasses. Amalgamation is employed on a small scale in some processes of gilding. The silver or other metal being overlaid with a film of gold amalgam, and the mercury being then driven off by heat. But its most extensive use is in separating gold, and especially silver, from certain of their ores. The mercury dissolves the particles of the metal and leaves the earthy particles. It is then easily separated from the gold or silver. This process, discovered in Mexico in 1557 by Bortolome de Medina, is very extensively used in Mexico at the present time, so the present time is early 1900s, and has been introduced with great success into the Californian and Australian gold fields. The mode of application is to crush the quartz rock, which serves as the matrix in which the small particles of gold are embedded, place the fragments in a barrel or revolving drum with mercury, and agitate for some time. The mercury attaches all the gold particles of it to itself, and in the apparatus, when fully agitated, there is found a semi-fluid mass, which is the mercury appearing half-congealed and containing all the gold. It is only necessary to place this amalgam in a retort and apply heat when the mercury sublimes over and can be re-employed for further am amalgamation and leaves the gold in the body of the retort. This process is the only known method of separating the finer particles of gold from a mass of rock and is always used by the gold-crushing companies. I wonder if it's still employed today with all the technology advances that we have. If you know, feel free to send me a line. Uh, you can email me directly at mandyoaks.com at protonmail.com or 
go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, select contact, and let me know. Uh, if this is something you want us to look at in a bonus episode, let me know that as well. Okay, several amalgams may be regarded as definite chemical compounds. Thus, when gold leaf is placed in mercury and the amalgam so produced filtered by being squeezed in a kamoi leather bag, the uncombined mercury oozes through the skin, but a definite amalgam of two of gold and one of mercury remains behind in the leather filter. Tin amalgam is employed in the silvering looking glasses and is formed by laying a sheet of tin foil on a table, covering it with mercury, and then placing by a sliding movement the sheet of glass over it. This amalgam contains three of mercury and one of tin. Glass balls are silvered with an amalgam of 16, I believe that's 16 mercury, one tin, one lead, and two bismuth. A silver amalgam, highly crystalline, and from the clusters of crystals somewhat resembling a tree called Arbor Diana, or Tree of Diana, that's kind of cool, is prepared from three parts of the strongest solution of nitrate of silver, two parts of solution of proto-nitrate of mercury added to an amalgam of seven mercury and one silver. In a day or two, the arborescent appearance presents itself, and the crystals contain 65% mercury and 35 silver. The amalgam, used for frictional electric machines, is made from one tin, one zinc, and three mercury, to which sand is afterwards added. Well, that's pretty neat. And with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. For the next 10 entries, we are going to remain in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and then we'll switch over a little later. It looks like entry number 27 we switch over. And our next set of five entries are Emily, Anna, Emily, Marie, Amand de Terre, Amanita, and Amanuesis. <laughs> And I know I mispronounced that. My apologies. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, have you ever heard of astral projection? And we're not in the ASs yet. We are getting pretty close. I uh, have not looked to see if astral projection is in the 1909. I'm not sure when that uh, phrase uh, came into being, uh, the etymology of it. I haven't looked in my etymology book. Uh, yet, but if you have a story about astral projection, uh, please let me know. Uh, send me a line, tell me your story, and um, I will use it for a bonus podcast if I get at least at least a couple. Um, I heard a really cool story uh, about astral projection. I've tried it off and on uh, throughout my life. Well, since I was like 18, I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. Um, and probably before that, too. But yeah, so if you've got an interesting story, uh, or or just, just a story, uh, it doesn't have to be interesting. Interesting is, is very subjective. Um, but yeah, just, just send me a line. You can email me your story at mandyoaks at protonmail.com, um, or go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact. And uh, if you don't want me to use your first name, uh, please let me know in the email or contact form. Um, but I would love, love, love to hear your stories. Okay, and um, let's go ahead and get into uh, number 16, which is Emily, or Emilia, comma, Anna, or Anna Emilia. She was a Duchess of Saxe-Weimar, or Weyman. It's kind of rubbed out there. She lived from 1739 to 1807. So, she was um, an amiable and generous patron of literature. During the latter part of the 18th century, the center of the court of Weimar, okay, so Weimar is the, uh, is the spelling, left a widow in the second year of her marriage in 1758. Her judicious rule as guardian of her infant son enabled the country to recover from the effects of the Seven Years' War, that is really cool, um, and promoted to the education of the people. Now, I have to say, I'm going to pause right here and just say, I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago who said that everything's biased towards men, that women don't get credit for anything. If you are a frequent listener uh, to this podcast, you know that that's not true. 
there are, granted, there are more male names out there than female, but we've seen, and Anna is one of these examples, we've seen quite a few women who have been attributed and credited to really good things. Now, there were also men and women uh, equally uh, who've done bad things, um, but that's just, uh, so I needed to pause there because she said, she told me next time I come across one to pause and say something. So there you go. Uh, so, so here we go. We've got a woman who is credited with good things. She appointed Wheeland Tudor to her son, afterwards Duke, and attracted to Weimer, I wonder if it's Weimer, such men as Herder, Goth, Knebel, Fodiger, Masusius, Chiller, forming a galaxy of genius, see, such as perhaps has graced no other court. Even after resigning the government into the hands of her son in 1775, she continued to be surrounded by the same society. She has the high distinction of having honored and encouraged the greatest writers that Germany has produced. So it would be Vimer or Vimar, um, the or something like that. The Battle of Gina is said to have broken her heart. She died six months after that event. So, wow. So she has the high distinction. A woman, Anna... Amalia has the highest distinction of having honored and encouraged the greatest writers that Germany has produced. And then a war broke her heart and she died later. In number 17, we have Amalia, Marie, or Marie Amalia, who was the wife of Louis Philippe, King of the French, daughter of King Ferdinand I and IV of the Two Sicilies, 1782 April 26 to 1866. When she married Louis Philippe, then Duke of Orleans, he was a political exile without a hope of ever rising to the throne of France. It was a marriage of personal choice, so here we go, on both sides, consequently happy. So I know a lot of people say, you know, romantic love and blah 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 is just, just this modern notion. No, <clears throat> it was their choice to marry and they were happy with it. After Louis-Philippe's elevation to the throne, the queen avoided interference in political affairs and devoted her attention to beneficence. In her domestic relations, her conduct was highly exemplary, and I think that, that is worth noting as well. Now, she didn't have to do this whole bunch of things, like gather writers, but her conduct, her conduct said everything that needed to be said about her. And she won the esteem of all parties. Indeed, the only charge ever preferred against her was her supposed excess of piety. She shared the fortune of her exiled husband and was very respectfully received in England. Louis-Philippe, shortly before his death at Clermont's in 1850, gave expression to the love and esteem with which he regarded his faithful wife. She died at Clermont in 1866. So there we go. So my friend, um, who didn't want to be mentioned whose name didn't want to be mentioned, um, there's another woman that you were concerned about. So number 18 is Amanda Terry, or Ter. There's no pronunciation key, so if I botched that up, my apologies. But all it says, and the, the name uh, is longer than the entry, actually. It just says C. Cyprus, or Cyprus. So C. Cyprus. So we will not get to that until the C's, C as in Charlie, or cat. And number 19, Amanita, or Amanita. So Amanita is a genus of fungi, nearly allied to Agaricus, but bursting from a vulva. A muscaria, common in the woods, especially a fir and beech, is one of the most poisonous fungi, so it's poisonous. It is also sometimes called fly agaric, being used in Sweden and other countries to kill flies and bugs. Oh, I like that. It's starting to get bug season. Tell you, hiking, I have had gnats all over my face. Um, I love the weather. Don't get me wrong. Love the weather. Just don't like don't like the, the gnats and the flies. Um, love insects. Um, just don't like those annoying ones. For which purpose it is steeped milk. The pileus or cap is of an orange-red color with white warts, the gills white, and the stem bulbous. It grows to a considerable size. Notwithstanding its very poisonous nature, it is used by the cam 
chat catalase to produce intoxication and it imparts an intoxicating property to the urine of those who swallow it. I don't want to know how they know that in the early 1900s. And entry number 20. Let me make sure I've got this pronounced correctly. Amanuensis, Amanuensis, noun, one who writes down the words of another, a writer to dictation. That sounds like a giant word just to say someone who writes dictations. Uh, Amanuensis is the plural. And with that difficult pronunciation, let's go ahead and go to break and I'm going to grab some water. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries are Amaranta, Amaranth, Amaranth again, Amarapora, Amarasinga. So again, we are sticking to the New Imperial Encyclopedian Dictionary of 1909 for these five entries. So number 21 is Amaranta, so Amaranta, town of Portugal, province of Minho on the Tamiga, a branch of Douro, 32 miles northeast of Operado. The Tamiga is crossed by a handsome stone bridge. The town is well built, but dull and decayed. A church erected in the 16th century is an interesting specimen of the flamboyant style. It was the scene of a fierce conflict between the French and the Portuguese in 1809, when the bridge was defended by the Portuguese for several days and the French committed great barbarities. The population was 2,500. Okay, so amaranth, and there's also another spelling, um, it's a noun, it's also spelled amaranthus, and you can see both spellings again on my website, and it looks like I spelled this wrong. Okay, let me fix that real quick. So on my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, just select uh, Encyclopedia Challenge, and then it's Season 1, Episode 62, and this is number... 22. And it is a noun. Again, it's amaranth. It's a flower inclined to a purple color. In poetry, a flower which never fades. That's really cool. I like that. I may have to use that. I've been writing poetry lately. Amaranthus hypochondriacus is prince's feather. And a caudatus is love lies bleeding. Order amaranthica. Amaranthine pertaining to or amaranthin pertaining to. Okay, and then we have another amaranth. Genus of plants of the natural order, and this is number 23. So genus of plants of the natural order, amaranthaceae. This order contains nearly 300 known species, natives of tropical and temperate countries, but abounding chiefly within the tropics. They are her herbs or shrubs with simple ex stipulate leaves and flowers and heads or spikes. The parent, usually colored, three to five partite, hypogenous, scarious, persistent, generally surrounded with small bractea. The stamens hypogenous, either five and opposite the segments of the parent, or some multiple of five, distinct or united into a tube, sometimes partly abortive. The anthers either two-celled or one-celled, the ovary single, superior, one-celled with one or few ovals, which hang from a free central cord, style single or absent. Stigma, simple or compound. Fruit, a small membranous bag or utricle, or a caryoposis, rarely bake it. Seeds, lens-shaped, externally crustaceous, embryo curved round the circumference, albumen farinaceous, the genus Amaranthus has mostly monoecious flowers, although the order is generally hermaphrodite, with two or three stigmas and at a one-celled and one-seeded utricle, bursting all round transversely. Some of the species are naturally of singular form, and others assume singular but monstrous forms through cultivation. A codictus, love lies bleeding, a Crinitus, a hypochondricus, prince's feather, and other species are common annuals of flower gardens. The spikes of A. cotitus are sometimes several feet in length. 
The dry red bracts which surround the flower retain their freshness for a long time after being gathered, for which reason the plant has been employed by poets as an emblem of immortality. That's pretty neat. The globe, A, or Gomprina globosa, and the coxcomb, well-known tender annuals, belong to the same natural order. The globe A is much cultivated in Portugal and other Roman Catholic countries for adorning churches in winter. Its flowers of a shining purple retain their beauty and freshness for several years. Our species of the order are mostly from tropical America, both the garden kinds and weeds. The pigweeds are green-flowered amaranths. In some countries, A. blitum, A. oloresus, chusenhan C., and other species are used as pot herbs. herbs. Wholesome, muscilaginous qualities are very generally found in the leaves throughout the order. The seeds of Amaranthus crementius, called kiri, and of A. anardahana are gathered as corn crops in India. Medicinal properties are ascribed to some species of the order, particularly to Gumphrina officialanus and Macro. Cephala, which have a high and probably exaggerated reputation in Brazil as cures for many diseases. Okay, and number 24 is Amarapora, so Amarapora or Umarapora, a city of the past, was before 1853 the capital of Burma on the left bank of the Irrawaddy, nine miles northeast from Ava, in latitude 21 degrees 57 feet longitude 96 degrees 7 feet. It was founded in 1783. In 1819, it was totally destroyed by fire, and in 1839, almost totally by an earthquake. In 1852 and 1853, by order of the king, it was finally deserted and the capital of the empire fixed at Mandalay. The population in 1819 was estimated at 170,000. Wow. Nothing remains of the old city but some rows of beautiful trees and a few ruined pagodas. And a temple between Emirapura and Mandalay is a famous colossal bronze image of Guatemala, or Buddha. And number 25, Amara Singha. He was a celebrated Hindu grammarian, probably of great antiquity, generally supposed to have been one of the Quote, nine gems who adorned the throne of King Vikramaditya I in B.C. 56. But Mr. Bentley of Asiatic Researches places him as late as A.D. 11th century, while Mr. Colbrook assigns the close, the close of the 5th as the most probable. Don't you love whenever the scholars all disagree? Uh, who wrote a variety of works, only one of which has come down to us, the Amara Kosha, or Thesaurus of Amara. Ooh, that's cool. Sometimes called the Triconda, i.e. the Tripitart. Regarding the author's life, little is known. He is known to have been a Buddhist, and it is almost universally believed that his writings perished during the fierce persecution to which the sect was subject subjected by the Orthodox Brahmins in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. This tradition harmonizes with the earliest of the three ages in which he is said to have lived. So, let's take a look at... Oh, I thought they divided it up. Never mind. The Amara Kosha is a Sanskrit vocabulary divided into three books and 18 chapters and containing in all about 10,000 words. The words are classed according to the nature of the things signified by them. Almost all the grammarians of Hindustan imitate, translate, or comment upon the work of Amara Singha. An excellent edition of the Amara Kosha, with notes in English and an index, was published by Colebrook in 1808, reprinted in 1829. I wonder if it's been reprinted since then. The Sanskrit text at Calcutta in 1813, and in 1839, a French translation. So that's pretty cool. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our last set of five entries for this week are Amari, Michelle, Amarna Letters, Amaraladia or Amaraladacia, Amaralus, Amasia or Amicia or Amasia. All right, and I hope I got that correct. So we're for entry number 26, we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. 
So number 26 is Amari, Michelle, or Michelle Amari. And now this is not a woman. So I remember Michelle could be a man or a woman's name. And 1800, uh, he lived from 1806, July 7th, until 1870, September 20th. He was born in Palermo, Palermo, an Italian historian and Orientalist. And he, his name could also be Michele, I guess, uh, since it was Italian. So, Michele Amari. In youth, he was in, he was in straightened circumstances and even meditated becoming a bandit. Oh, wow. Uh, but was aroused from his morbidness by falling passionately in love with an English lady. I understand falling passionately in love. Although he did not win her hands. Oh, that's sad. He won a knowledge of the English language, the first result of which was a translation of Sir Walter Scott's Merriam, or Marmion, and that was in 1832. He soon became a political suspect, though he had conducted himself during the tumult of 1837 with exemplary moderation. He remained four years in Naples, where he was diligent in historical investigations, and in 1842 appeared his La Guerra del Vespro, Siciliano, the War of the Sicilian Vespers, his masterpiece often republished. Its great merit is its successful disproving of the common notion that the terrible massacre so named was the result of a deep and ramified conspiracy of the nobles. He proves from a letter of Charles of Anjou himself, as well as from numerous other sources, that it was a popular or national outbreak occasioned by the tyranny of the foreign rulers and that it really brought about the deliverance of Sicily. The book was quickly prohibited, of course, <laughs> and as a consequence, widely read. Yes, of course. Uh, how many books in uh, the last few years have been banned and then widely read? It was translated into German by Dr. Schroeder of Hildesheim and into English by Lord Elsmer. He fled to France, where he studied Arabic and modern Greek, and prepared his history of the Muslims of, in Sicily. At the Revolution of 1848, he returned to Palermo, where he had been appointed professor of public law, but shortly after his arrival was elected vice president of the Committee of War. Wow. He was next sent on a diplomatic mission by the provisional government to France and England. In 1849, he published at Paris... La Sicile et les Bourbons to show up the pretensions of the Napoleon sovereign. From the Sicilian insurrection had been quelled, now after the Sicilian insurrection had been quelled, he resided in Paris, engaged in literary pursuits until 1860, when he returned to Italy. He was made senator next year, and in 1863 and 1864, he was minister of instruction. Other writings of his are upon the language and history of the Arabs in the Review Archaeologic, the Journal, journal Asiatic, etc. He died at Palermo. And number 27, uh, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And let me make sure I'm, on the, I'm not on the right page. Okay, here we go. Amarna um, Letters. So, Amarna Letters, a collection of cuneiform clay tablets discovered in 1887 at Tel al-Amarna, a village on the Nile in Middle Egypt on the site of a city built by Amenhotep IV. They comprise the correspondence of the Egyptian court during the Amarna Age, which was around 1375 to 1360 BC, and with but three exceptions are in the Babylonian language. That's pretty cool. Some of them were written by Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV and other royal personages contemporary with these, but most of the Amarna letters have been found at Tel El Amarna, but others of this period written from sources outside of Palestine have been found in excavations elsewhere, as at Ras Shamra, or ancient Ugarit. Okay, I, I included that one because I thought that was pretty cool. Um... Just clay tablets that they that they found. So, and they are written in the Babylonian language, with, with three exceptions, they said. So that's pretty neat. And that does it for the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So the next three entries, or the last three entries, 
are strictly from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So number 28 is Amarella Dacia, which is a natural order of monocytolidaneous plants, including many species distinguished by the beauty of their flowers. They are herbaceous plants, or when, as in the genera agave and Forcroa, they form woody stems. They have still the character of gigantic herbaceous plants rather than of shrubs. The greater part are bulbous rooted. The leaves are sword shaped. Ooh, that's cool. I like that description. With parallel veins, the flowers have spathaceous bracts. The parent is regular, six cleft, sometimes with a corona. The stamens are six, arising from the perianth, sometimes cohering by their dilated basis, the anthers bursting inwardly. The ovary is inferior, three-celled with one, two, or many anatropal ovals. The style is single, the stigma three-lobed. The fruit is a three-celled, three-valved capsule or a one-to-three-seeded berry. The seed is albuminous with the embryo nearly straight. There are about 400 known species of this order, natives of tropical or subtropical, and more sparingly of temperate regions, particularly abundant at the Cape of Good Hope. A few species only are European. Many of them are much prized ornaments of gardens and hothouses. Among these are different species of Narcissus, Amaryllis, Crinum, Alstromeria, Niren, Cabergia, Brunsvigia, Pancritium, Forcroa, etc. To this order belong the snowdrop and snowflake. It includes the American aloe or agave. Well, that's pretty cool. And number 29, Amaryllis, noun. Um, it's also a name. So before we get into the actual definition, it says it's a name of a country girl in Virgil. Okay, so Amaryllis. It's also a genus of bulbous-rooted plants of the natural order Amaryllidae, having a simple six-partite perianth and containing a large number of species, natives of the warmer regions of the globe, Many of them have flowers of great beauty. A species of this genus, A. hormosissima, was brought to Europe from South America in the end of the 17th century, and has since been in common cultivation as a garden flower. Its flowers are of a beautiful red color, ooh, exhibiting a play of golden gleams in the sunshine. They are scentless, A. mabellus, A. josephinia, and A. betia are amongst the most admired bulbous-rooted plants. A. Sarnicius is the Guernsey lily, probably from Japan. The sapphire or fairy flower, native from Pennsylvania southward, has large pink and white flowers on a short stalk. Oh, cool. It is a garden favorite, as is also the rose zephyr, zephyr flower of florists, or A. rosea. And number 30. Number 30 has different, three different spellings. So this is our last entry. Um, we have Amasia or Amicia, or Amicia. It's a town of Asia Minor, the principal town of the Viliet of Sias, on the right bank of the Yashil Ermac, about 80 miles from the mouth of the river and 200 miles southwest from Trebizond. It stands in a deep and narrow valley, and the river flows through a narrow channel between precipitous rocky banks. The streets are narrow and crooked, the houses mostly of wood, although some are of stone, all roofed with tiles, the river is crossed by three stone bridges and one wooden bridge. One of the stone bridges is supposed to be Roman. The ancient town, the birthplace of Strabo, occupied both banks of the river, and the remains of the Acropolis crown a lofty rock on the side of the river opposite to the present town. There are numerous other interesting remains of antiquity, particularly the tombs of the kings of Pontus, whose capital Amasia was ex excavated in the face of a steep rock and some Saracenic buildings. Water is raised from the river by means of wheels driven by the river itself for irrigation of the gardens and mulberry plantations. Much silk is produced in and around Amasia, also wine, cotton, corn, and matter. Silver, copper, and salt mines are wrought in the neighborhood. Silk and salt are the chief articles of export. It is also the seat of an Armenian bishop. The population uh, in the early 1900s was around 30,000 and about one-third being Christians. Okay, and that, that's what they said. Okay, and that uh, 
concludes our 30 entries. So congratulations. Any of you new uh, listeners out there, thank you so much for sticking uh, with me today. And I hope you continue the journey to enjoying uh, the encyclopedia. And again, if you missed any, uh, don't worry. They're all there on my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. And just a few little uh, reminders. Um, my 20% off the Teespring store code ends today. So that's Mandy20. It's all in the, the description below. It's the Teespring store. Uh, don't forget Camp NaNoWriMo. It's out there. Um, you're almost done. You got this. And if anyone has a story about astral projection, please let me know. And we'll try to do a bonus on that later. Uh, so astral projection, you can email me at mandyoaks at protonmail.com or go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com and select contact. And uh, with that, uh, let's go ahead and do our quote of the month for the last time in April by Sydney Smith. The fact is that in order to do Anything in this world worth doing, we must not stand shivering on the bank, thinking of the cold and the danger, but jump in and scramble through as well as we can. And I hope that quote helps you sometime in your life. And I hope you have a blessed week. And with that, I bid you adieu.